0: When I was in school, there were certain things that I liked about school and certain things that I didn't like about school. I'm sure you were the same way. Certain things that you enjoyed about school, certain things that you liked about being in school, certain things that you didn't like about school. I'll share with you one of the things that I didn't particularly like about school. One of the things I did not like about school was all of the test taking Perhaps you're the same way. I didn't really love the test-taking. I'll tell you what drives me crazy about test-taking, especially when you're in, in a classroom, is that when it comes to uh, test-taking, and Justin Joseph is a professor. You know, he was just up here, as a professor. He told me his goal with his test is to make the students' lives as miserable as possible. That's what he said to me. <laughs> and I think all teachers have that in them. So that's a fair thing. He went downstairs, so now I can just throw that right in there. You can tell him I said it. But when you're taking a test in a classroom, right, when you're taking a test in a classroom, one of the things that you have to worry about is not so much what the right answer is when it comes to the essay or the question that's in front of you. It's not so much about what the right answer is. Uh, What you have to think about is what is the right answer as far as the teacher or the professor is concerned, What's the right answer as far as the maker and the creator of the test and the person uh, who is going to grade this thing? What do they think is the right answer? That's what you have to think about. And so you can write an essay, if the essay is on name the five factors that caused World War II, you could write a brilliant essay on the five factors that caused World War II, and you could provide all sorts of reasons why you think those are the five factors. But if they're not the five factors that the professor gave you in the lecture two months ago, then you're probably not going to get the question right. When you come to those tests, you're trying to figure out, well, what is it that the professor thinks is right? What is it that the teacher wants me to do? Perhaps the hardest time to figure this out are the tests that I personally like the least, and those are the multiple-choice tests. Those ones, I think, are the hardest, because when you get to a multiple-choice test, inevitably, you're going to come to a question where you're going to read the opening statement. We're going to read the opening question, whether this is middle school, high school, college, or your, your, your driver's test. You're going to read a question. And then you're going to go through all four of the responses. You're going to read A, and then B, and then C, and then D. And you're going to look at all four of them, and you're going to say to yourself, it could be any one of those. The answer could be any one of those. You've had that experience before. You've gotten to one of those questions, and you read all the responses, and all four could be right. Or maybe you look at them, and you're saying both of these could be right. Two of these answers could be right. Or sometimes you come to a question and you say to yourself, all of these answers look wrong. None of these answers look right. I studied this stuff. I read the material. And you read A and it's not right. You read B, it's not right. You read C, it's not right. So you think it must be D, but then you read D and D is uh, both A and C are true. And so you have no idea what to pick. And inevitably, when it comes to multiple choice, you get those kind of questions where either multiple answers seem to be the right way to go or multiple answers or all the answers seem like they would be the wrong way to go. And you wonder to yourself, what does the teacher want me to say? Not so much what is the right one, but what is it that the greater wants me to say? What does he or she think is the right answer? Listen, all of us that follow God all of us that have a relationship with Jesus, all of us who want to know more about God, we all want to know what it is that God wants us to do with our lives, right? I mean, if you've made that decision, if you've decided to follow God with your life, if you've decided to follow Jesus with your life, one of the things that we want to know is we want to know, God, what is it that you want me to do with my life? What is it that I'm supposed to do? And what we would love is we would love when we go to ask God what he wants us to do. Another way uh, to say that is when we go to figure out what is God's will for our life, that's the way we often say it in church, when we go to God and we say, God, what is your will for my life? What do you want me to do? Just speak to me. Tell me what it is. What we would love is we would love if God was a lot like the magic eight ball. Do you remember the magic eight ball? You remember the Magic 8-Ball? I think we have a picture of the Magic 8-Ball up here. The Magic 8-Ball uh, was, was a toy that you could ask questions to. You remember? And the second you asked a question to the Magic 8-Ball, you would turn the Magic 8-Ball over, and the Magic 8-Ball would give you an answer. So you would have this, and I had one when I was a kid. You would have the Magic 8-Ball, and you would say to the Magic 8-Ball, Is, uh, are the Patriots going to win today? And you would shake the magic eight ball and you would turn it over and the magic eight ball would say something like, uh, it's decidedly so. And it would give you an answer immediately. We would love it if that's the way that God worked. We would love it if God was like the horoscope or the magic eight ball or a fortune cookie that when we needed some advice and we needed to know which way to go in our life, that we could just in that moment crack it open or turn it over or read the, read the page and immediately God would tell us exactly what it is that we're supposed to do. The problem is, most of the time in our lives, it works much more like a multiple choice test where we come to points in our life of great decision. And maybe we come to a point and we have multiple choices. And the problem that we face is many of those, multiple of those choices look like good ideas or good choices. So maybe you're deciding between two jobs and they're both good jobs. Or maybe you're deciding between two schools and they're both good schools. And you're going to God and you're saying, God, what is it that you want me to do? What, how do you want me to handle this? Where do you want me to go? And all you want is to be able to turn over the eight ball or crack open a fortune cookie and for God to just give you the answer right then and there. This is what I want you to do. More likely, we come to places in our lives where we have decisions in front of us and they all seem to be difficult decisions or bad decisions. And then we find ourselves saying to God, well, God, what in the world do you want me to do? What in the world do you want me to do? I don't even know what to do here. Do you want me to stay in this job where I'm miserable and feel unappreciated and feel mistreated? Or do you want me to just leave this job with no prospects for the future? What is it that you want me to do, God? You want me to stay in this marriage? You want me to try to work this thing out when it hasn't been working for years and years? Or or do you want me just to go my own way? And to have us go our separate ways. Neither one of them seem like great options. But yet there's something that God wants us to do. So how, when we get into those points, do we figure out what it is that God wants us to do? We would love it if we could just go to God whenever we needed something. If God was like a, like a, a carnival vending machine, a carnival fortune teller. And we could just take our coin and when we hit one of those situations that we could just go up and we could put our coin in and we could pull the lever or we could twist the knob or we could move the joystick and out would pop a piece of paper and it would tell us exactly what we are supposed to do. The problem is when we're trying to hear God's voice is that there's all of these different choices that are out in front of us and many times we're not sure what it is that God wants us to do or where where it is that he wants us to go. If you've been with us over the last few weeks, we've been walking through this series we're calling Living a Repurposed Life, and we've been walking through just two verses in the book of Romans, and this is our last week in these two verses. We've been walking through Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, and today we're going to talk about the last phrase in those verses. And in this last phrase, the Apostle Paul tells us exactly how we can know God's will for our life and what he wants us to do when we are caught in those difficult places where there's multiple choices and multiple options and we're not sure exactly which way we're supposed to go. This idea of living a repurposed life, we're kind of playing off the the thing that's popular in our world right now and that is taking old things and making them new, taking things that have lost their original purpose and repurposing them for something new. And we believe that's what Jesus does with our lives when we choose to follow him, that he takes our lives that are old and that are broken, and he takes those things and he turns them into something else and makes them into something new. So this is what I'm going to ask you to do with me. One last time, if you've been here uh, all four weeks, this will be your fourth time doing it, but let's read these verses together. This is Romans 12, verses 1 and 2. Would you read them with me? Let's read them together. and perfect. See, in these verses, there's two things that Paul says to us about the will of God, and we're going to walk through them fairly quickly. There's two things that Paul says to us about the will of God in these verses. The first thing that Paul says to us is Paul says that when it comes to determining the will of God, we learn to determine the will of God at the very end of a process, We learn to determine the will of God at the very end of a process. All of these verses go together. So if Paul were here today and he were to say, do you want to learn how to know God's will for your life? Well, this is what I would suggest to you to do. In view of who God is, in view of God's mercies, in light of all God has done for you, this is how he starts off Romans 12.1. In light of all God has done for you, his love for you, his sacrifice through his Son, in view of God's mercies, give everything that you have over to God. Present your body and everything you have as a living sacrifice to God. All that you have and all that you are, live dead to yourself and alive in Christ. Give everything that you have to him. Don't give yourself over to modern cultural ideas. Don't give yourself over to the things of this age. Don't allow yourself to just be swayed by everybody and everything around you, but instead, create space in your life for the Holy Spirit to do the work that only he can do, okay? In view of God's mercies, in light of everything he's done, give everything that you have to God, and don't just go with the things of the age. Instead, create space in your life for the Holy Spirit to do what only he can do, and then Paul says, After all of that, then you can test and discern the will of God. It comes at the end of the process. You know, Paul's saying, in order for you to understand what the will of God for your life is, there has to be a committed relationship here. That God isn't standing there like a like just waiting in the window like a fortune teller for you to come and give him some money so that he can tell you what you're supposed to do. There's a, a commitment here, a relationship here that is built, and as that relationship is built, you come to know who God is. As you give your life, control of your life over to him and trust him, you come to know who God is and what it is that he wants for your life. And then you know what it is that he wants you to do. The first thing that Paul tells us is it comes at the end of a process, This happens to us in other relationships. Lori and I have been together for a while. Uh, We've been married for over 10 years, and we've known each other longer than that. And so, uh, you know, it's come to a point that I don't have to be with Lori to know how she would respond in a situation or what she would want me to do in a situation, how she would want me to respond. There are plenty of times in my relationship with Lori in our marriage, and this happens the other way too, where Lori's not in the situation, I'll do something, I'll take a course of action, and immediately after I take that course of action, I'll say to myself, Lori's going to be happy with that. I know she's going to be happy with what I just did. I don't have to call her up and ask her, she didn't have to write it down on a list for me, I know she's going to be pleased with what I just did, because I know her, we're committed to each other, we've gotten to know each other over the years. There's also been many times in our relationship where I've done something and immediately I've thought, she's not going to like that. <laughs> and I know it immediately. Not because she's told me that she's not going to like it, but because we're in a committed relationship. We know each other. I know what, what, how Lori thinks and she knows how I think. And the same thing happens the op- opposite way. When I think about uh, I've worked with Pastor Rick at this church. Pastor Rick Picarello is our senior pastor here at Mount Hope. We've worked together for over 10 years as well. we've known each other longer than that. And so there's no doubt in my mind when I'm not with Pastor Rick, and a situation arises at the church, I know what he would want us to, to do in any situation. There's been so much that's happened over the years. That when we come to a situation, I know how he would want us, as the pastoral staff of the church, to respond to that situation. Because there's a commitment there. The same thing happens with a boss and employees that have been through the ringer together and have been together for a number of years. You know what your boss wants. He doesn't have, or he or she doesn't have to tell you what they want. They don't have to send you a list anymore. You know what they want. Maybe you're an officer in the military. You know what your commanding officer wants. Or You're a soldier in the military. You know what your commanding officer wants. They don't have to tell you anymore. You've been through the battle together. And the next time it comes around, you know what they expect and what they want. And the same thing happens in our relationship with God. But there has to be a commitment there. Because God's not the magic eight ball. And God's not a fortune cookie. And God's not our horoscope. But many of us, that's the way we treat him. We don't need God or pay attention to God until it comes time to make the big decision or until we're in need of some help or until we're in trouble. And then we run to the eight ball and we shake it and we pick it up and we hope that God will just give us the answer. And sometimes God comes through like that. But Paul says, you really want to know what God wants for you in your life? What God really wants you to do? Then there needs to be a commitment there in your life to him. The second thing that Paul tells us in this passage is that we understand God's will through a process of discernment. In fact, another way that this is translated in some English Bibles and could be translated is the word prove. But Paul says we discern the will of God. When you discern something, it's not, the answer is not just handed to you. Discernment comes as you use your senses, your sight, your ability to think, and you think through different options, and you come to the conclusion, or God leads you to the conclusion that is the right one. Discern and prove is very different than the way we often approach God. You know, when you do a proof in school and your teacher, your math teacher, tells you to prove an equation, you can't just write the answer on the paper and hand it back to the teacher. I've tried that. It doesn't work. You have to show your work. You have to walk through a process. You have to prove the answer. And Paul uses the exact same language here. That if you're in this committed walk with God, if your entire life is his, then when there's all these options in front of you, you've given your life over to his spirit, you've given everything you have to him, that you will be able to test and approve and discern God's will for your life in spite of the fact that there are many options in front of you. Let me give you an example of how this played out in the life of Paul. Paul. Paul, as you may know, uh, didn't stay put much in his ministry. Paul went many different places in his ministry. And so he went on three different mini- uh, missionary journeys, Paul did, telling people about Jesus, planting churches around the known world. And in Acts chapter 16 through Acts chapter 19, we re- you can read the story of Paul's second missionary journey. A couple of months ago, I was at a conference, and the head of the conference, one of the speakers of the conference, is a man by the name of Randy Hurst. And Randy Hurst is on the executive board uh, for missions in the Assemblies of God. That's what Mount Hope is a part of a denomination, a fellowship called the Assemblies of God. And Randy Hurst sits on the board, the executive board of uh, the missions team. And he brought this illustration uh, to the conference that I was attending a few months ago. And when I heard him give the illustration, I was so moved and so uh, impacted by the illustration, I thought to myself, uh, I'm going to steal that and I'm going to use it. So here we go. When Paul went off on his second missionary journey, this is how it started. And I love, I love these stories probably because it makes people real. Because even Paul was, was a, a real person used by God. Paul and this guy Barnabas, they were going to head out together on a missionary journey. Uh, But Barnabas wanted to take this young guy named John Mark with them. Now, John Mark, he's the guy that wrote the Gospel of Mark. They were going to take John Mark with him. He was a young guy. Well, what happened was is John Mark went on the first missionary journey, and he got homesick, and he went home. And Paul, he didn't really like that. And so when Barnabas said, we're going to bring John Mark, Paul said, "Uh, no, we're not. That's the guy that misses his mommy when we go away on the missionary journeys. We're not taking him again. And Barnabas says, yes, we are. And Paul says, no, we're not. And the Bible says they had such a severe disagreement that they went separate ways. They're the real people used by God. So they have this severe disagreement, and they go their separate ways. And Paul takes a man named Silas, and they start off. And the first place that Paul and Silas go together is they leave Antioch, and they go to Tarsus, and they go to Lystra. Now, Paul has a plan once he gets to Lystra. This is what Paul says he's going to do. Paul's plan is to go into Asia and preach the gospel to the churches there. But what happens is the Bible says that God, by his spirit, stops Paul from going into Asia. Now, I don't know what that means. I don't know if Paul went to go into Asia and take this road, and there was a... Flaming sword in the path, and Paul said, "Uh Uh-oh, we shouldn't go there. Here's what I think probably happened: is that Paul tried to get supplies together to go, Paul tried to get his contacts together to go to Asia, Paul tried to get a team of people to go with him to Asia, and all that he tried failed. That he was trying to get things done, that he was trying to go and his GPS wouldn't find the coordinates and the car ran out of gas and whatever could go wrong went wrong. And Paul was trying to take this message into Asia. He thought that was the best course of action, but there was something that God did that stopped him from being able to go. And Paul took a look at the situation. He said, all right, God, what do you want us to do then? So Paul decided instead to go towards Galatia in Domitia. And it's a good thing he went to Galatia. Because while he was there, he planted a church. And later he would write a letter back to that church called the Book of Galatians. Had he gone to Asia, he wouldn't have been in Galatia. And Paul had a plan and he said, okay, this is what we're going to do. This is what we're going to do. We're going to go to Bithynia. That's the next place that we should go. And the Bible says that the Holy Spirit stopped Paul and his crew from being able to go into Bithynia. That the road was blocked. That things wouldn't come together. That everything was harder than it should have been. And so in that that moment, Paul received a call called the Macedonian call. And what that looked like was Paul had a vision one night. Paul had a dream. And there was a man in Macedonia, and he was saying, come and preach the gospel to us. So rather than force his way into Bithynia, Paul decided to go to Macedonia. And while he was there, he preached the gospel in those places. Then he left Troas and he went to Neapolis and Philippi. And while he was in Philippi, which he never would have been in, had he gone to Asia or had he gone to Bithynia, Paul and, his, 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 uh, and Silas met a woman named Lydia. And Lydia was visiting Philippi from Thyatira. And she was visiting Philippi from a place that is now in modern-day Europe, in the western part of Turkey. And while she was in Philippi, she heard Paul's message of the gospel, and she became a Christian, and she became the first convert from modern-day Europe to accept the gospel. And while Paul was in Philippi, he was thrown into jail with Silas. And while they were in jail... There was a big earthquake and the jail doors flew open and Paul and Silas were able to walk out. And so the jailer who was in charge of them, he began to despair because he knew if these prisoners escaped that he would lose his life. And Paul and Silas were able to talk to the jailer and he became a Christian. And so Lydia became a Christian in Philippi and her entire household. And the jailer became a Christian in Philippi and his entire household. Paul planted a church in Philippi and later he would write the book of Philippians back to that church. And then Paul moved on from that place, and he moved to places like Thessalonica and Berea, and then he moved on to Athens, and when he was in Thessalonica, he stayed for a while, and he planted a church, and later he would write letters back to that church, first and second Thessalonians, and then he moved to Berea, and if you've ever read these passages, he created, he started a church in Berea, and the people were so diligent about the word of God in Berea that they studied it day and night, and they, they, we were talking about clinging to God's word earlier, the Bereans cling to God's word. And then what happened was uh, a lot of the people in Thessalonica, they weren't big fans of Paul. And so uh, they showed that they weren't big fans by trying to kill him. And so he, they found him in Berea and they tried to attack him in Berea. And Paul knew they were coming and he knew that it was getting a little too hot in Berea. So he escaped to Athens. He wasn't really supposed to be in Athens. He was supposed to be in Berea. But when he found himself in Athens, he just kept going. And he went to a place called the Areopagus. And while he was there, he started to talk to Greek philosophers, people that had no idea about who Jesus was. And he found ways to connect the message of the gospel to the culture in which he was in in Athens, this Greek culture. And we don't have time to get into it all, the whole story. But what happened is by the time that Paul's ready to leave Athens, there's a group of people in Athens that are saying to Paul, we want to hear more about this. And so Paul, he finally leaves Athens and he goes to the city of Corinth, starts a church in Corinth. He writes later, he writes First and Second Corinthians back to this church in Corinth. He stays in Corinth for a year and a half, investing in the life of these people and these new believers in the city of Corinth. And then he leaves Corinth. And he goes on to Ephesus. And while he's in Ephesus, he's preaching and teaching in the synagogue. But the people that he's preaching and teaching to in the synagogue, they're not really responding to what Paul was saying. And so God takes him out of the synagogue and leads him to a school. And the school that he leads him to is the school of Tyrannus. And listen to what the Bible says in Acts chapter 19, verses 8 through 10. Paul entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way, the way is the Christian life, the gospel, before the congregation, Paul withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyranus. This continued for two years. So Paul wanted to go to Asia, but God stopped him. And instead, God sent him on this path that went way around in areas that he never thought he would be. And then he ends up back in Ephesus for two years, teaching at this school. And do you know what happened when he was at this hall teaching? People from all over came to learn. And for two years, Paul taught them. And then listen to what the Bible says next. This continued for two years. Now listen, so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. Paul continued for two years, and all the residents of Asia heard the gospel because of the teaching that Paul was doing in Ephesus. Ephesus. And what happened after that is that churches were planted in cities all over Asia. And you know what happened later is that a church was planted in Bithynia where Paul had wanted to go in the beginning. Churches were planted all over that region because Paul was willing to discern and listen to the will of God. But how did Paul know it? How did Paul know what God wanted him to do? Paul knew what God had wanted him to do because Paul knew God. Back in Romans chapter 12, Paul says something about the will of God. Paul says that God's will would be good, acceptable, and perfect. The question is, to whom? To whom is God's will good, acceptable, and perfect? We say to God, God, I will do your will as long as what your will is, is good, acceptable, and perfect to me. But what Paul would tell us is that God's will is good, it's morally right, it's acceptable, and it's perfect to him, not to us. And Paul had a relationship with God, he had a commitment with God, and so he knew. If God was telling him not to go to Asia, if God was telling him not to go to Bithynia, that God had a plan that was good, acceptable, and perfect, that went far beyond anything that he could come up with on his own. And because Paul had the relationship, Paul was able to discern what God's will was, his good, pleasing, and acceptable, his good, perfect, and acceptable will. And what we learn from Paul is that we cannot know God's will for our lives unless we know God. If you want to know God's will for your life, you have to start with knowing who God is. The person of God. The character of God. If Paul was here this morning and we said to Paul, Paul, listen, I've got all these things going on in my life. I have all these important decisions to make. I need to know where to go and what to do. And my kids are becoming teenagers and we don't know how to pay the bills. And all of these things are going on. What in the world am I supposed to do? Paul would say to you, I'll tell you what you're supposed to do. You want to know the secret? Here's the trick. In light of God's love for you, in light of all that he's done, The fact that he sent his son to die on the cross for you while you were still a sinner. In light of all that God has done, give everything that you have to him and live dead to yourself and alive to Christ. Give your entire being and your bodies over to him as a living sacrifice. Don't just listen to what the culture is saying. But submit yourself to the Holy Spirit and create space in your life for the Spirit to do the work that only He can do. And then you will be able to test and approve and discern God's will for your life. Not because you come up with good ideas yourself, but because the Holy Spirit is at work inside of you. And He's leading you and guiding you as to what you are to do. If we want to know what God's will is for our life, we need to know who God is. We need to be in a committed relationship with God, giving everything that we have over to him. We would love for God to work like the magic eight ball, or the fortune cookie, or the carnival fortune teller, or the horoscope. When, when we get to the point in our lives that we're not sure what to do, all we have to do is flip open the paper, or put our coin in, or crack open the cookie, or just shake it and turn it over, and God would tell us exactly what to do. But if you want to know the will of God for your life, you have to know God. Paul doesn't give us a lot of shortcuts here. And so what I'd ask you to think about your own heart and your own life this morning if you want to live your life the way that God wants you to live your life, if you want to do what God's plan is for your life and not waste your time coming up with your own solution or your own ideas, but do really what God has put you on this earth to do, and you're trying to figure that out, I would just ask you, are you submitting yourself to him? Is all that you are and everything that you have yours? Because I promise you, the plan that God has for your life is so much better than the plan that we could come up with on our own. We can come up with some ideas on our own. We can find solutions on our own. But the plan that God has for your life is so much better than anything you could come up with on your own. Not only did the, rather than Paul spending his time going from town to town in Asia, he planted multiple churches in the entire region. And then God put him in a place to impact the entire region for the gospel. God has a plan for your life that is good, acceptable, and perfect to him. And it's better than anything that we can come up with on our own. If you want to know what it is, you want to know his will, spend time getting to know him. Create that space. Open up that Bible and start reading it. Go into his presence and spend time in prayer. It's the only way to know what it is that God wants you to do. I'm going to invite our worship team back as we close this morning. I'd invite you, if you would, just to bow your head, close your eyes with me for a moment. We're going to close this morning just with one song together. And while we do that, I'd invite you to take a couple of moments And think about where is it in your life that you're wondering what it is that God wants you to do. Where in your life you're wondering what the path is that God wants you to take. That situation that you're facing right now today that you're not sure what to do. Think about that thing. And think about how well you're doing right now in your life. Getting to know God. Spending time with him spending time in his word, spending time in his presence, creating the space in your otherwise busy and chaotic life for the Holy Spirit to speak. And maybe this morning you would make a commitment that this is going to be the day that you start creating the space in your life for God to be able to speak. This is the day you're going to commit yourself to giving everything that you have and all that you are over to him so that you might know his will for your life. Or this is the day that you stop listening to the voices of this age and start listening to the leading of the Holy Spirit in your life. I promise you that God has a plan for your life and his will will is better than anything that you could come up with on your own. But the only way you'll know it is if you know him and are committed to him. God, I pray that you would speak to us. Lord, I pray that you would tell us what it is that you want us to do with our lives. And I pray that as we enter into your presence, as we commit ourselves to spending time in your presence, as we commit ourselves to spending time listening to your spirit, as we commit ourselves to spending time in your word, God, I pray that you will move as only you can. You will reveal to us what it is that you have for us to do. And God, that we would trust you enough to do it. Pray all these things in Jesus' name.